the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Grayson gets pummeled by star empires. Readers get a cornucopia of earchs. Readers win. Jeeves in space, chaplains and saviors tumbled together and polished to a sheen of science fiction brilliance. Plus, part 13 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have the first of an excellent interview with David Weber this time. David discusses the new special signed leather-bound edition of the second entry in the Honor Harrington series, The Honor of the Queen. David really gets into the background of the novel and discusses many aspects of both the writing of The Honor of the Queen and the story itself. Now, this is where I warn you, as David, too, suggested, there are major spoilers in this interview. Our idea going into the interview was that someone who might want to get the signed leather-bound edition of the second Honor Harrington novel had probably already read the book and would want it for reading again, not for the first time. So be warned. But there is also plenty of excellent material in the interview as well. David is a voluble man, as you may have guessed, and we really get into a great discussion of the honor of the Queen. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. I want to remind everyone that there are some great e-arcs available at the Bain eBooks website. Now, an e-arc is the call of agony a European makes when he or she has filled up the car with Petro, totted up the taxes, and goes to pay for the privilege of not walking or being stuffed into a train that doesn't put one off near one's ultimate destination. Uh, no, 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 that, that never happens in Europe. No, an e-arc is an electronic advanced reading copy, an e-book galley, for a new print offering that's coming up. We offer them exclusively and for a limited time at the Bain eBooks website. Up now at BainEbooks.com are a bunch of great books. These include The Chaplain's War by Brad Torgerson. Here is a debut military SF novel that's really fantastic. Brad has been nominated in two short fiction categories this year for Hugo Awards, and one of those stories forms the basis for The Chaplain's War. It's a great book. Check it out. Also out in eARC form is The Savior by Tony Daniel, yours truly, and David Drake. This is David and Mai's finale of our latest addition to the General series, a.k.a. the Raj Whitehall series, created by David. The Savior is the sequel to The Heretic. It stands alone nicely, if I do say so myself, and it gives a rousing conclusion to this two-book portion of the General series. The Savior will be out in hardcover in September, by the way. Also in ERC is Jody Lynn Nye's sequel to A View from the Imperium, this one is called Fortunes of the Imperium, Jeeves in Space. It's really a lot of fun. So check out these latest additions to the eARC list and all the other eARCs now available, such as John Ringo's Islands of Rage and Hope, uh, Charles E. Gannon's Trial by Fire, Wynne Spencer's Wood Sprites, 
and the opener to a new subseries within the Honorverse, A Call to Duty, by David Weber and Timothy Zahn. They're all available at BainEbooks.com. Here is part one of a two-part interview with David Weber. David discusses the leather-bound signed edition of the second Honor Harrington novel, The Honor of the Queen. The interview is in-depth, and there are major spoilers herein if you haven't read the book, so be ye warned. Now for the rest of you, here you go. Part one of an interview with David Weber discussing The Honor of the Queen. I want to welcome David Weber back to the podcast. Hi, David. Hi. David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which that series is set, beginning with On Basilisk Station, which is hard to say. <laughs> Weber's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies. As those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast know, We've recently spent 2013 serializing David's latest entry in the main series, Shadow of Freedom. David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the epic fantasy Basel series, and a couple of series with other publishers somewhere out there. David has had 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. So I thought I'd give a brief setup of The Honor of the Queen, which is what we'll be talking about with David today. The first Honor Harrington novel on Basilisk Station uh, takes place in 1900 and 1901 post-diaspora, that is, um, in the Honorverse uh, uh, year system. Honor spends a couple of years battling pirates after that novel, and then The Honor of the Queen happens in 1903 post-diaspora, when she returns uh, from her, her pirate uh, killing adventures and um, for a refit of her heavy cruiser, the HMS Fearless. At that point, she gets a new assignment, travel to Grayson, which is a, which is a planet that is, um, that is, how is that? It's on one of the nodes, right? The, uh, the. Well, it's, it's on, uh, it's in the Yeltsin star system, <clears throat> excuse me, and Yeltsin star lies in a volume of space uh, where Manticore does not yet have a defensive base against the threat of the uh, Havenites, the, the People's Republic of Haven. So both sides are courting to get a forward base in this area. Uh, Yeltsin Star, the star system where uh, Grayson, the planet Grayson, is located, is in a volume of space in which both the Manticorns and the People's Republic of Haven want forward bases as part of the uh, the uh, pre-positioning for the war that both sides know is eventually coming. It's the only, uh, it and the neighboring star Indicat are the only inhabited star systems in this entire volume of space. And so both sides want to get the locals to sign on with them uh, so that they will have uh, not just a place where they can anchor a couple of repair ships, but some place where they can have an entire support node uh, for their fleet operations. Isn't the is is um, Grayson the location of one of these wormholes that that makes travel faster? No, uh, it's no, not. no. Grayson. That's one of the reasons it's important is because there's not a wormhole through this volume of space. <clears throat> One of the things that happens in the books is that the entire uh, 
strategic approach to interstellar warfare shifts because the the traditional historic paradigm has been that you control a volume of space by putting uh, your bases, your 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 uh, political and military control installations into that volume of space, and then you gradually move on to the area beyond it. In the course of the wars between the Star Kingdom and the People's Republic, they realized that the, uh, the deep strike doctrine in which you may attack a target that is a couple of months' travel time through hyperspace away is thoroughly practical. And so the importance of this kind of uh, forward basing becomes less and less relevant. But nobody knows that in uh, 1903, 1905, when, when honor is sent to Grayson. Okay? You can think of it kind of like in the period leading up to World War II, World War I and immediately after it, the British possession of coaling stations all over the world where they could refuel their relatively short-legged ships gave them a huge strategic advantage. In World War II, the U.S. developed the uh, underway replenishment concept where your ships refueled at sea without ever returning to port and might be at sea for months on end. And then the importance of forward bases became less relevant uh, for power projection. You still needed them as a place to base your repair facilities and that kind of thing. And in that respect, Grayson becomes hugely important to Manticore in the course of the books. But it's no longer necessary for power projection per se, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. Um, it Perhaps we should uh, should go get to the basics of the honorverse. Um, there are two ways to travel between the plan between the star systems of the galaxy. Correct. There's the you can go through hyperspace, uh, or you can go through which is which is by yes hyperspace is by far the most common way to get from point A to point B. The there are relatively few of the wormhole junctions, which establish hyperbridges, which are basically instantaneous shortcuts across huge distances. And when you possess one of these, <coughs> excuse me, one of these wormholes, it makes you a uh, uh, an inevitable nexus for trade because you can get from, for instance, Manticore to within 40 light years of Earth, which is 600 light years away, um, in basically a week, because you come out of the wormhole bridge at uh, at Beowulf, and then you're only like 40 light years from Earth. Uh, whereas otherwise, it would take you three and a half to four months to make the trip one way. So you can think, if you want to, you can think of wormholes as the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal. They're a fast way to get from the Pacific to the Atlantic or from the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean. Uh, and what makes Manticore such a particularly juicy prize uh, strategically is that it has the biggest wormhole junction ever discovered, which has at least six separate termini spread out all over the place. And this makes Manticore uh, a banking hub, a hub for commercial transactions, uh, information exchange, uh, huge advantage for the merchant marine. It's kind of like having one country 
that has that owns the English Channel, the Suez Canal, and the Panama Canal all at once is kind of the advantage that it bestows on Manticore. Um, Haven, the People's Republic of Haven, does not have any wormhole junctions. They're much bigger than Manticore. They have a lot more inhabited planets. They have a lot more people, etc. But they don't have that kind of access. And when the Republic of Haven turns into the People's Republic of Haven and turns conquistador, if you will, uh, that makes Manticore sort of an inevitable target, even though it's about 130 light years away. Um, and because of Manticore's junction and the wealth that it generates, Manticore has probably the highest per capita standard of living in the entire explored galaxy, even though they don't have a whole bunch of people. But because of that wealth-generating capacity and so forth, Manticore is the only potential opponent in what's known as the Haven Sector that could hope to build a fleet big enough to stand up to the People's Republic. And that's how the, the Cold War between them begins. And that goes on for 50, 60 years before it finally turns hot um, at places like Basilisk Station in honor of the Queen. And then actual full-scale war breaks out in the third book in the series, The Short Victorious War. Haven is uh, has become. It started out as you described it before as um, as the United States uh, sort of feel to it before, and then uh, if the elites and the and the the crime bosses got together and overthrew our government, it might be something like that now, autocratic, oligarchical. Kind, kind of, sort of. Um, essentially. The, the People's Republic of Haven was originally the Republic of Haven, and by the point where we are in the books now is once again the Republic of Haven. <clears throat> the, the People's Republic emerged out of a combination of good intentions, um, avarice, and criminality. Um, what essentially the elites uh, in the system, which has enshrined uh, a very high level of, uh, of uh, social support from the government, government control of industry and so forth. Eventually, what they do is the, the current governing elite makes a deal with somebody called uh, the Dolist Managers. And the Dolist Managers are people who you could think of them as not so much as crime bus bosses as as corrupt political bosses. They run the political machines in these huge cities, and they can reliably deliver large blocks of Dolist votes. Dolists are the people who are drawing their primary support from the government. Mm -hmm. And they were not the in a position to... They were not in a position to uh, monopolize the government, but they were a very potent voting force. And what happens is that the legislaturists make a deal with the Dolist managers in which the Dolist managers agree to support this group. The, they become the legislaturists, the, uh, the hereditary ruling caste uh, in, in Haven. But basically, they agree to provide votes, no questions asked, in return for being allowed to control the social programs in their machine areas. 
And so they're the ones that anybody in that area has to come to for help for uh, uh, problem solving, for a larger support payment or whatever, which gives them even greater power uh, in their in the communities that they control. And in return, the legislaturalists make themselves the, the uh, hereditary aristocracy of this system. So in a way, it's almost as if they've established a sort of uh, economic serfdom uh, or you could also look look at it as the the Roman bread and circuses on a on steroids, mm-hmm. but it's definitely the result not of and it wasn't something that was inherent in the system having to go there. Okay, what happened was that people who saw a potential to secure their own power took a system that already had problems and deliberately transformed it into something which put them permanently in control. Okay. Now, the problem is that in doing so, they pretty much shot their own economy in the head um, because in order to maintain the edifice that their power rests on, they have to provide consistently more and bigger uh, um, uh, payoffs. Yeah. through the dullest managers to the dullest. It's it's kind of like naming no political parties uh, from our current experience, but it's kind of like Illinois with the, the huge uh, pension and retirement liabilities that they have that they literally cannot pay for out of their own state's revenues. Okay. Well, Illinois is a state in the union, and therefore, you know, there's the possibility of a federal bailout or whatever. But the legislaturalists were the only game in town. So after they had accrued these huge liabilities, they decided the only way that they could solve their problem was to conquer their neighbors and basically siphon the wealth that they needed to make these other economies captive to their own to to brace it up, to hold it up. And as many a conqueror through history has found, once you start down that slope, you can't really stop. You have to keep expanding because the moment you stop expanding, your system begins to to stagnate and to retract. Because you're creating wealth by stealing it, correct? I mean, that's... Yeah, you're stealing it. Well, it's not so much... That's how it's portrayed a lot in the books, but a more nuanced uh, version of that would be that you are you are forcing other economies into your orbit, kind of like a reversion to mercantilism. They have to buy from you. They're not allowed to buy from anybody else, etc. And the entire economy then begins to to contract. And on top of this, you have the problems of its being a planned economy with the people who are running it not necessarily being completely honest with the people at the top, not admitting that they have problems when they when they do. The, the, the legislatures could have avoided the Duquesne plan, which was the plan that called for this uh, conquest in order to survive. But the only way that they could have avoided it would have been to reform the system. And in reforming the system, they would almost certainly have lost their privileged positions in it uh, and might well have been held accountable for many of the, uh, at best, unscrupulous and arguably criminal arrangements that they had made. 
And so as far as they were concerned, they really only had one option. And Manticore was one of several smaller star nations which saw this happening. And under um, Roger Winton, King Roger, uh, began preparing for the eventual confrontation about 50 or 60 years before they actually got into a shooting more uh, with Haven. Now, there are a lot of essentially good, decent people who are sort of trapped within the Havenite system. They're peeps, which is the, the pejorative term for the People's Republic, because that's the star nation they were born in. Uh, because they are patriots, because they love their country, their family, whatever. And so they find themselves in the bad guy fleet um, and up against the good guy fleet, even though they themselves are good people. And that's one of the things that I think happens an awful lot in wars, and that a lot of people who write military fiction don't pay attention to. They want the people on both sides to be either all good or all bad, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, we meet some of these characters in the honor of the Queen, um, and this is the flashpoint of uh, of this long build up Cold War between Haven and. Uh, Haven and uh, the Star Kingdom of Manticore, and it takes place in the system that of, of Grayson's planet. Of, it's uh, Yeltsin's star, and Grayson is the planet that's inhabitable there. Uh, where is Masada in relation to Grayson? Because that's a large part of the plot of the book as well. Masada is in, <clears throat> excuse me, the Indicot system, which is about, I don't have the book in front of me, I think it's about three and a half, four light years. Not far. Uh, from Grayson, and... In fact, it was colonized from Grayson. Um, Grayson has been colonized um, at least four or five centuries longer than Manticore. Um, Grayson has been colonized for almost a thousand years, maybe a thousand years, by the time of the, of the first book. And they were colonized by a bunch of uh, religious fundamentalists, uh, who were fanatic greens from the state of Idaho, primarily. Um, and they were convinced that uh, technology was uh, the, the destroyer of humanity, uh, the sin of the machine, they called it, falling in love with technology. And so they bought a starship to get away from it. And they went on a... Uh, almost a thousand-year voyage in cryosleep to get to the planet Grayson. And when they got there, they discovered, uh, after it was too late to go anywhere else, that Grayson's level of heavy metals is so great that just breathing the air is toxic. Um, and so they discovered that they couldn't discard technology and survive, but they had deliberately thrown away a huge amount of technology, refusing to bring it with them. And so they very nearly died out in the first 100 years or so after they, after they reached this planet. They didn't have the capacity to sustain uh, space-based habitat at that point. They had to move to the planet. 
and yet the environment they were in meant that they almost had to build space habitat levels of hermetic windows and air filtration and whatnot just to just to survive. Um, had a huge, huge infant mortality rate. Um, they already packed, practiced polygamy before they uh, they made their trip to Grayson, and they don't find this out for almost a thousand years, but the reason that they managed to survive at all is that a couple of their senior leaders secretly commission a genetic modification program, which would be anathema to their, you know, sin of the machine thinking, that allows them to survive heavy metal poisoning better than most humans can. And actually, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a modification which allows them to bind heavy metals in sputum and urine and get rid of them in a way that most humans can't. But one of the downsides of this modification is that it creates a disease state which causes a huge imbalance uh, in births between men and women. And so you have about three times as many women being born as you do men. And on a planet which already enshrined polygamy and in which you have this huge infant mortality rate, uh, women as potential mothers become incredibly important if they're going to survive. You have a religion which initially um, did not regard women as fully the equal of men but certainly did not regard them as a, you know, subservient property kind of kind of thing. Um, and on Grayson, a code evolves in which women have no political rights. They have, uh, they can't own property in their own name, etc. They don't vote. Um, and yet, if you publicly insult a Grayson woman, you'll be lucky if all that happens is they lynch you. It's a hugely, you know, protective situation in which women are never really allowed to grow up. And there are certainly men who abuse it, but by and large, the ideal on Grayson is, oh, women have so much to put up with, and they did with the mortality rate, infant mortality rate, and so forth. And, you know, they're so important to us, we have to protect them, we have to shield them. Um, on the planet Masada, which is by the way, uh, I, I chose that name deliberately to indicate that human beings are capable of twisting anything, mm-hmm. make themselves look good. So anybody who thinks that I am equating the the, uh, the Masadans in the book with the actual historical Masada really needs to think again. But anyway... Uh, the people who eventually settled Masada were known as the faithful on Grayson. They called themselves that. They never signed on to the um, the reductions in the restrictions against technology that mainstream Grayson uh, bought into. So they were fundamentalists. Um, Austin Grayson was was the charismatic leader of the colonists, and he, when he got to uh, to uh, to Grayson and realized that they had to maintain technology. He revised his teachings, and basically what he said is, God has sent us here to teach us that it isn't technology that's evil. 
It's allowing technology to be our master rather than our servant that is evil. Okay? And that was, in essence, the creation of the doctrine of the test, which is central to grace and theology. The, the theory is that God tests you in order to encourage you to grow and to become all that you can become. And it is a central tenet of grace and theology that every human being, man or woman, must meet his own test and that only he or she can do it. Well, the faithful were members of the original Grayson uh, community who believed that uh, Austin Grayson was wrong to make that change, that if they had only, you know, hewed to their principles, rejected technology, that God would have transformed Grayson into the Eden they hoped it would be, and everything would be fine. Needless to say, they are a minority within the Grayson population but they become an increasingly militant one. And four or five hundred years in, there is a huge civil war, which starts with a preemptive attack by the faithful that wipes out basically all of the um, heads of state uh, on Grayson, um, and which is eventually defeated by a fellow named um, Benjamin the Great, uh, who was the uh, the heir to the... Uh, protector, who was like the uh, the emperor of Grayson. Um, and at the end of it, they find that the Masadans have built a whole bunch of really dirty bombs, which they are threatening to set off if they are defeated. Nuclear devices. So instead, yeah, yeah, these are, well, they're not just nuclear, they're also uh, biological, they're, they're bad. Uh, and the, the, the theory that the that the faithful had was we will destroy the entire planet. Probably they wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, and given the, the homes had to be built because of the environment, people would have found it a lot easier to survive the kind of radiation and chemical poisoning that that the uh, the faithful were talking about. But they could have killed a bunch of people and done a huge amount of damage. So basically, Benjamin made a deal with them. Uh, Grayson had recovered technologically to a point at which it was possible for them to build uh, ships capable of making uh, an interstellar flight as short as from Yeltsin Star to Endicott. And so Grayson basically exiled the faithful to Endicott, where they named their planet uh, Masada. And the irony of it is that Masada is a much, much more habitable planet than Grayson. So the faithful could have huge families, whereas Grayson's had to practice strict birth control. Uh, they didn't have to spend a whole bunch of their resources on keeping their planet from killing them, etc. And the descendants of the faithful decided that it was their God-given task to go back and retake uh uh, Grayson, to make it the God-fearing planet that uh, God had always intended it to be. And that leads to these centuries of hostility uh, between these two star systems. And because the Graysons originally wanted to get so far away from the rest of humanity that they would never be found again, it is literally close to 800 years uh, before anybody does find them again. 
sort of by accident and and passing through. So they have a lot of uh, indigenous technology that they have to rediscover and and bootstrap themselves uh, back to. And eventually, when they are encountered by the galactic mainstream again, they find themselves gifted with uh, hyper-technology and impeller drives, and all of a sudden they can get at each other to fight uh, the the war of conquest, mm. and they really the faithful in particular really really hate. I mean, they're they're a hateful group. Um, they really want to. They're perfectly willing to destroy Grayson if they can't conquer it. Correct? Uh, yes. The Mossad the Mossad the Mossadans theory is better dead than godless, and anybody who doesn't agree with us is godless. And as they see it, the Graysons are even worse than people who never heard the truth because the Graysons have heard the truth and rejected it. Uh, the uh, the Mossadans are so reactionary, okay, that uh, the, the Graysons are basically Christians with the added teachings of Austin Grayson added to their, to their theology. The... Um, the Mossadans decide that what happened on on uh, on Grayson was the fault of the women, because after all, they were the ones bearing the children and dying and not doing you know everything they were supposed to do. Uh, did I mention that the faithful are not fully rational? <laughs> um, and so, on Masada, women are property. I mean that that's all they are. Is, is property, um, and only sons are prized. And they regard the Graysons as not simply infidels, but as apostates who have rejected the truth. Meanwhile, the Masadans have removed the entire New Testament from their scripture because clearly, you know, if Christ had been the Messiah, then the machine would never have arisen. <laughs> And we would we would not have had the problems we had uh, to get to where we are for them in this current day and time. Um, I religion plays a major part in a lot of my science fiction, but I'm too much of a historian not to recognize the many many times that religion has been used to do great evil, as well as the many many times that religion has been responsible for great good. And that's one of the things that I was looking at. Uh, when I set up the, the Graysons and the, and the Masadans. The Graysons are very religious. They're very conservative. Uh, they are not quite an outright theocracy, but pretty darn close. Um, and they know what they believe, even when what they believe is not necessarily accurate. They know what they believe. Now, because of the doctrine of the test, they are always willing to consider that they might be wrong, okay? Uh, Austin Grayson said, uh, the test is God's way of showing us there may be more for us to learn, and that's deeply embedded in Grayson theology. It is not a part of Masadan theology at all, <laughs> and the Masadans are determined to smash Grayson for daring to disagree with them. So into this mix comes uh, the, the People's Republic of Haven and the Star Kingdom of Manticore wanting uh, a base. Um, and that's, the, that's where we began. That's how Honor shows up. Is that her, what is her mission there? 
her mission is to procure okay she is the commander of the military escort of a diplomatic mission to Grayson Grayson's not too sure that it wants to sign on uh with Manticore which after all is this secular society blah 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 with women in control of <laughs> women in the military no, I was going to say for the, the, well, for the real sticklers, it, it has a queen, okay, which is like a, I don't know about this. And women are not allowed to serve in the military uh, on Grayson. It's considered that this is too brutal an, uh, uh, an occupation for them, etc. So when Honor shows up as the senior officer of the military escort, it offends all of the Grayson stereotypes. Now, in addition, the guy who is the uh, the the guy who's the head of the mission is a fellow named Raoul Curvoisier, who is an admiral, but who is here as a as a diplomat rather than as uh, as a military person. And Curvoisier was Honor's uh, mentor at the academy, and uh, she she he's almost like a second father to her. Um, and he is the guy who is responsible for trying to get this uh, this uh, treaty negotiated. And then there's a fellow named Reginald Hausman, who is a professional uh, foreign office type who is supposed to be uh, Carvoisier's senior advisor and who is an absolute jackass. Yeah. Boo, boo, Hausman. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Uh, one of the reasons why in the Safehold books, um, Edward Hausman is the head of a huge industrial complex, which is building the weapons the good guys need to live, is because I have a friend who's Hausman, and he gave me a hard time <laughs> over, over the fact that all the Hausmans in the Honor Harrington books seem to be idiots. There actually have been some very intelligent Hausmans who are not idiots, but nobody's noticed them. They get lost in the underbrush of Reginald and his sister. Anyway. Um, so honor is one of the reasons why there's a military escort is that uh, there are freighters which are loaded with um, uh, advanced technology starter kit 101, say, uh, that Manticore is preparing to provide to, to Grayson as part of the treaty relationship. And Grayson needs this desperately because even though their technology is marginally better than Masada's, hugely outnumbered. And so they need a qualitative edge and an outside military patron to help them survive the threat of their fratricidal neighbors. Um, now, both the People's Republic and Manticore would have, would have preferred an alliance with Grayson. Neither one of them really wants an alignment, uh, an alliance with uh, Masada. The Peeps are more willing to deal with the Masadans because the Peeps are very cynical, real politic, whatever gets the job done, hang the morality types. Um, but the other reason is that their reputation precedes them. In a way, Grayson sees all the conquests and so forth and is really, really cautious about stepping into the spider's web. And so Manticore has a shot here with the, um, with the uh, existing Grayson government. The fact that they sent Honor as the commander of the escort 
is a major stumbling block in many ways. But as Courvoisier points out to her when she first is chosen for the mission, 50% of the Star Kingdom's military personnel are women. 50% of their diplomats, of their foreign policy types, of their industrialists are women. And Grayson's going to have to learn to deal with this. And therefore, nobody's really concerned with finding a good a good officer with a Y chromosome to command the, the, the convoy. It's like we're going to be honest with them from the beginning. This is what we are. This is who we are. If you can't deal with that, then there's no future in an alliance with you anyway. Um, the problem that Honor has when she gets there is twofold. One is that because of events in uh, on Basilisk Station, she was uh, tried for mass murder in absentia in a, Mantic- in a, in a uh, Havenite court and condemned to death. <laughs> she is uh, the the local uh, peep uh, uh, diplomats are portraying her as a mass murderer, crazed fanatic kind of person. And the folks who are predisposed to think that women in the military are a bad idea are saying, see, see, we told you women shouldn't be allowed in the military. Not only is she a mass murderer, she's a woman. (laughs) Even worse. It's a mass mass murderess, okay? This is even worse. Um, But it also, the prejudices give a degree of, of believability to the Havenites' ludicrous charges that they wouldn't otherwise have had, if you see what I'm saying. Um, the other problem, though, is that Honor Honor is a mama bear if you mess with any of her subordinates, anybody she's responsible for. Mm-hmm. But she is not that same way for herself. Okay, It's not that she will just sort of lie down and let people walk on her. It's that the way that her mind works is that she is more focused on being a sheepdog than a wolf. And one of the reasons for this, which is not really that evident in this book, but I think becomes evident as you get, a little, get further along, is she's taught herself to be that way because she is a very, very dangerous person. She has said on many occasions that with just a little bit of difference in her rearing and her childhood education, that she could have been a monster uh, because she is very, very good at killing people. And once she decides you need to be killed, no problem. Mm-hmm. As <laughs> okay. we find throughout the Honor her Harrington series, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And and so she basically has uh, has turned down the heat under the me first part of her personality in order to keep that monster side of her in bay, at bay. I don't know if a lot of people have really picked up on that in the books, but it's always been a part of her character for me and helps to explain why she's the way that she is. And she's kind um, of she's kind so, of buried this side of herself in trying to be ultra competent and putting her her ego aside to get the job done. That's part of it. That's part of it. Um, I would say that 
I'm not going to say that she sublimated her own needs and desires because she hasn't. And eventually, as the books go on, she becomes more willing to. I mean, at one point, she says, "You know, hey, I don't care if the queen wants to see me. I haven't seen my daughter in six months. I'm going home to hug her, and then we'll go to the palace, call her up, and tell her." <laughs> but she would never have dreamed of saying at the time of honor of the queen. So she kind of she kind of gets over it some, but she is much more programmed to protect others than she is to protect herself. And she is programmed to put herself out there to protect others. Okay? It's the kind of mentality that I suppose you would have to have to be a good uh, Secret Service agent. Okay? The mentality that says, it's my job to stop the bad guys, and if I can't stop the bad guys, it's my job to get between the president and the bullet. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's the way that she thinks. And so when the Graysons can't accept her, when she gets, uh, you know, ignored in, in conversations when they want to talk to her senior male subordinate or whatever instead of her, first she comes from a society where this just doesn't happen, okay? I mean, of all of these, all of her critics over the years, there's never been a single Manticorn critic who said, well, she shouldn't be an admiral, she's a woman. It just would not cross the mental event horizon of a manticore. Okay, this is like something out of the dark ages when you you bled people because they had a fever. It's it's that non-relevant to their society and their standards, and so she's never encountered this before. She gets to Grayson, and as a result, she has no armor in place, no techniques for dealing with it. And the second problem is that it seems to be directed at her, and it is hampering Courvoisier's mission, because nobody seems to be able to get past her being, as she puts it at one point, you know, I seem to get right up their noses, you know, they can't look past that. And Courvoisier is her mentor, who she hugely respects. Absolutely. And she feels horrible, because she she can't figure out how to make the Graysons treat her the way they need to, and she's hampering Curvoisier's ability to discharge his mission, which is of vital importance to the security of the Star Kingdom. And so she kind of winds up blaming herself, or at least her presence, for the problems that he's having. And so she basically decides to leave one destroyer of the, of the military escort in Grayson, while she takes the rest of the escort, including Fearless, to deliver the ship's from the convoy, which are going to another star system some ways away. And that will give uh, Kerboisier a few weeks while she's gone to sort of hit the ground running and maybe get some of these doors open when they don't have all the problems with Captain Harrington keeping them from doing it. And it turns out to be one of the worst mistakes of her entire career, although there was no way she could have known it would happen. Because while she is gone, the peeps who have been talking to uh, the Masadans provide the Masadans with a modern battle cruiser with which to take Grayson out so that Grayson won't be available to enter into an alliance with the Star Kingdom of Manticore. And she's left one destroyer behind to support the uh, Grace and Navy against this threat that nobody has a clue is out there. 
and among other things, it results in the death of Raoul Courvoisier, her mentor, who she loves dearly. Um, so, you know, people talk about honor being kind of, you know, omnicompetent and so forth. But the problem is that she's smart and she's competent, and that means that she makes smart, competent mistakes. Mm-hmm. What she did was logical, it was reasonable, it was not the best way to handle it, but she did it for, you know, and it is a mistake for which she has never forgiven herself, uh, even to the current point in the books 20 years later. Um, But she's had to live with it. Uh, And it explains a little bit about her attitude towards Grayson later on, but I'm getting ahead. Well, she, yes. Um, You're letting yeah. me wander all over, <laughs> all over the, all over the landscape here. Tom. Well, you're getting it's such a succinct uh, encapsulation of the whole thing. That it's like let him, let him say it. So, so one of the themes of the book we talk about women. Uh, one of the themes of the books uh, of the honor of the queen is the relationship of women to society and and culture. There's a lot of different ways of treating women in the book from uh, honor um, to uh, some horrible war crimes that that go on as well. I have always felt that science fiction is a good venue for addressing situations, conditions, and problems of our own experience, but that you need to think about how you're going to do it. And what I mean by that in reference to this specific instance is I think that near-future science fiction is a totally logical platform for feminist science fiction, for people dealing with problems similar to or directly descended from the one that women are facing today, uh, especially in non-Western countries. I think that by the time you get a thousand years into the future, which is when honor is running around, if you assume that we haven't figured out that women are human beings too, and that they are every bit as important, then I think that you are hugely selling women short. That that they're going to put up with it for another thousand years. And you're also selling the rest of us short in terms of, oh, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. So in the mainstream societies of the honorverse, this is a totally done deal. It's so done that nobody even thinks about it. Uh, It has about as much relevance to members of the Star Kingdom as Pharaoh's policy towards the Hittites has to us today. It's that far, ancient history, unimportant, done. And I think in many ways that is the most effective way to say, hey, this is where we're going, deal with it in fiction today. Mm-hmm. Well, Grayson and Masada are just create, uh, are backwaters. I was going to say, in order to create a society in which honor would then have to deal with some of these circumstances. I had to create a a believable reason for there to be an intergalactic backwater that wasn't part of that societal template. And so Grayson and Masada, which have been essentially isolated from the rest of humanity for a thousand years, 
and who, because of the survival imperatives on Grayson, combined with their their theocratic approach, have actually regressed from uh, the 21st century norms. And that gave me a um, a uh, uh, a template that I could work with, which would be to try and draw a parallel today. It would be like sending a military task force commanded by a woman into Nigeria to attempt to recover the kidnapped girls. Mm-hmm. Because it would get right up the nose of everybody on the other side and prove absolutely the the godless apostasy of the people who were sending them in. Okay? Uh, and so I had to create, if you will, uh, for want of a better term, a third world environment that I could send honor into to cause her to have to cope with with these sorts of difficulties and also to look at two different social and religious responses to the challenge of female equality and female capability that honor and the other female members of the of her of her crews presented to Grayson and Masada alike honor returns from her uh, from her self-imposed mission to deliver uh, the goods to another system and she comes back and finds that the uh, that the Grayson system has been devastated by this attack and then she battles and we get the wonderful uh, wonderful last third of the book where um, where all hell breaks loose that was part one of an interview with David Weber discussing the honor of the Queen we'll have part two of the interview and the conclusion next time on the podcast. And now, here is part 13 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity, and Jake is good at that. Now Jake has stirred up the mob, and a rogue hitman is planning Jake's demise, all to add a notch to his machine-gun stock, but also interested in Jake are some altogether more impressive actives who may or may not wish Jake ill. They represent the grim noir society. Now Jake has awakened in the cheap hotel room where he lives to a big surprise. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 13 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 6 I swing as hard as I can, and I try to swing right through the ball. The harder you grip the bat, 
The more magic power you use all at once, the more you can swing through the ball. And the farther the ball will go, I swing big with everything I've got, muscle and magic. So now they're talking about banning us actives from baseball because we're not fair, not sporting. Hell, I hit big or I miss big. I am what I am and I live as big as I can. George Babe Ruth Interview after hitting his 200th season home run, 1930. New York City, New York Billionaire industrialist Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant had many offices, but the one that had the best view was at the top of the relatively new Chrysler building. Not only did he like this particular office because it enabled him to look out over the city, which he considered his personal fiefdom, but he also found the building aesthetically pleasing. It was pointy. His favorite pointy building had briefly been the tallest building in the world. Before the Empire State Building had been completed, he had a suite there as well, but preferred this location because from this position he could watch his fleet of transatlantic passenger dirigibles docking at the Empire State, or his cargo airships landing at the industrial pads closer to the ocean. It made him feel like a child with a model train set. Cornelius stepped away from the window as a servant brought him the morning paper. He took his place in a comfortable recliner and opened first to the obituaries, as was his daily custom, to see if anyone he disliked had died. But sadly, the announcements held no joy. On the bright side, that meant that his most hated enemy was still suffering and wasting away under the curse of the pale horse. His spies had confirmed that he had taken gravely ill, and he had not been seen in public in almost two years. The thought made Cornelius smile as he turned the pages. He still owed that foul Harkness a favor, but whatever it was would be worth it. The Times spoke of more war in Asia as the Imperium annexed another bunch of islands he'd never heard of. Herbert Hoover looked like he was going to be trounced by Governor Roosevelt, not that Cornelius minded, since he had donated plenty of money to both sides, and more general lawlessness and moral decay around the country. Most of the news was old hat for a man who had informants everywhere, but one item caught his attention. Well, I'll be, he muttered around his morning cigar as he studied the photograph. It was a grainy shot of one of the Imperium's new tri-hulled super dirigibles, taken over some Dutch colony. It would look like a big blurry blob to most viewers, but he recognized the design because it had originated amongst the cogs employed in his engineering department at UBF. He disliked cogs, just as he disliked all magical people, himself and immediate family excluded, but he had grown fabulously wealthy from their genius. Every cog was already a genius in their own way, absolutely fanatically brilliant at something, but then they would occasionally use their power to push them over the top to achieve the most amazing of all creative achievements. The Imperium's new Kaga-class flying battleship was a perfect example. Nine hundred feet long, with three separate hydrogen-filled hulls, each hull cordoned off into ten separate armored chambers, the Kagas were the biggest thing to ever take to the sky. Hydrogen was far more dangerous than helium, but provided more lift. The Imperials had asked for hydrogen in the specifications probably because the main source for helium in the world was unavailable to them in Texas. 
With the redundant mechanical and magical provisions, the Kagas would be virtually indestructible with armaments that outclassed the best dreadnoughts of the Great War, but with four times the speed, its own parasite air force, and a virtually unlimited range. The picture was a bit different than the blueprints he had seen, more bulbous. The Imperials had added a few things that he did not recognize, but that did not concern him. UBF had been paid to provide the hull and engine design. His eldest son had arranged the deal while serving as the ambassador to Japan, may God rest his soul. The government had forbidden the sale of super-science to the Imperium as part of the embargo, but Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant knew that laws were to keep the lower classes in line, whereas he did what he wanted, but did so in secret to avoid the hassle of know-nothing's petty harassments. The embargo forbid UBF from the construction of any warships for a foreign power. Cornelius was currently overseeing the construction of the Emperor's personal flagship at the UBF plant, but since it was officially a diplomatic and scientific vessel, it was perfectly legal. The warships, like the Kagas, on the other hand, were quite illegal, but with the economic slump, the Imperium were the only people with money to burn. He'd sold them the Kaga design a few years ago. He was just surprised to see that the Imperium had gotten the bugs worked out so quickly. Once they started using their new super dirigibles to further their domination of the East, the U.S. Navy would be forced to come to UBF for their own next-generation airships. Cornelius loved a good arms race as much as the next robber baron. Chicago, Illinois the Gridiron Club was usually quiet on Sunday mornings, but today was the exception. Lenny Torrio was pacing up and down the bar, throwing bottles and whatever furniture he could pick up in a fit of rage. His remaining seven men were standing around, waiting for the bout to pass like they always did. These spells had earned Mr. Torrio the nickname of Crazy Lenny, but they always eventually subsided. They'd lost five boys last night, shot to death, and poor Amish tossed out a window. The old Rasmussen Hotel had been evacuated right before the boiler had exploded, and they'd just got word that the city inspectors were saying the building was unsafe and was going to fall down. They all knew that it was a mess, and the public outcry would bring the law down on them hard. Mr. Torrio was going on about how Al Capone was sure to move in on them when some new faces arrived. The first was another Japanese, this one younger than the last one. It made the men uneasy when they saw how unnerved the new arrival made their boss. I'm sorry about your friend, Torio sputtered. Really, I am. Please give your chairman my full respects. The Japanese did not speak or move. Another man entered behind the Asian. This one was white, tall, muscular, with a badly scarred face, and one milky white eye. Apparently, seeing him really shook Mr. Torrio. Whoa! Hey, old buddy! Been a real long time, I'd heard. Heard wrong. He grunted. Call me Mr. Matty now, Lenny. It's just about last night. About Jake. Look, I'm sorry, because I just did what I was told. Torrio looked back and forth between the two newcomers, apparently confused. I didn't know you were working for the chairman now. The big man with the bad eye shrugged. I don't care about Jake. I go where the action is, Lenny. 
Your sources find anything on these other guys the chairman's looking for? Torio raised his hands defensively. You know how it is with demons, man. You gotta sort out what's true and what's not, but that device you were looking for, that you're... He nodded respectfully toward the Jap before continuing. Dear, deceased associate showed me the drawing. It's in California. I saw a skinny girl on a train, not far from where I found that old Portuguese for you. She was easy, cause she don't know about finders. Turns out that bit ain't so important. What about the others? They've hidden themselves too good, but I know Christensen was last in the mountains and South Under was uh, on the ocean somewhere. I'll track them down for you, I promise. Well, that narrows it down a bunch. Maddie turned to the other man and spoke real slow in a language that none of the men understood. The Japanese gave a quick reply. Maddie asked a question. The Oriental nodded once, and the big white man went back to Torio. My associate doesn't think we need your services anymore, and that you brought too much attention. Oh, come on, Maddie, Lenny begged. It ain't like that. Where else are you going to get another finder as good as me? Oh, somebody else told us where to find them already, and if we need to summon any critters, I figure we'll get by. Maddie answered as something strange moved in the shadows of the warehouse rafters. Everyone looked up as the summoned fell from the ceiling, spread its eight-foot wingspan, and settled gently to the floor. It hissed at the men with both heads, and they instinctively stepped back. Claws clicked on the hardwood as it scuttled around the end of the bar and out of sight. Something squealed and the dragon came back with Mr. Torio's imp clenched in one set of jaws. The other head came around and snapped onto the creature's legs. Mildred! Lenny shouted as his imp was ripped in two. No! The dragon kept chewing as the imp's body dissolved into smoke. The whole crew was so distracted by the sight that they didn't see the man called Maddie reaching for his shoulder holster. Ten seconds later, Crazy Lenny Torrio and his entire gang were history. San Francisco, California It was all a little overwhelming, and all Faye could do for her first few minutes in the big city was gawk like the country girl that she was. There was an astounding number of people packed everywhere, scurrying along in every direction, the train station was easily ten times the size of the station in Merced, and there were more human beings milling around the platforms in those first few minutes than she had seen cumulatively in her entire life. The air smelled like diesel and humanity and all sorts of unfamiliar perfumes. She tried to shrink down, uncomfortable, not used to moving through a crowd. The people were so packed that they moved in waves, almost like a herd of Holsteins, only far more colorful. Many of the men were in suits. Some were in work clothing, and Faye saw military uniforms for the first time. One handsome young man in white, Gilbert had said that meant Navy, winked at her as he went past, and Faye looked down, blushing. The young man was elbowed in the side by one of his friends, and they all had a laugh. The women were astounding, their dresses so pretty and flashy that Faye instinctively felt drab and boring in comparison. 
Their hair was all done up in ways that she had never even imagined, while hers was just flat. Many of them had jewelry and more wore furs, and almost everyone had a hat far nicer than her simple straw one. Feeling underdressed compared to the other women, Faye paused long enough to put on the only piece of jewelry she possessed, the gold and black ring from Grandpa's bag. It wasn't nearly as fancy as the big things with all of the sparkles like the others had, but Faye figured it would do. The ring was too big and flopped around on her finger, but at least it was something. She made her way through the masses, walking in the direction that most of the other disembarking travelers were heading. Somehow she ended up inside a building with really tall ceilings and big stained-glass windows, and then she was swept out onto a sidewalk along a street where more fancy cars than she had ever imagined were speeding back and forth. She had seen Mexicans before. They came through the San Joaquin Valley and picked the crops every year, but the Mexicans here were different. They didn't seem to be passing through. They looked like they lived here. Faye saw other colors of people for the first time, too. They were just part of the crowd, working just like everybody else, and nobody here seemed to pay them any extra mind. She tried not to stare because that just didn't seem polite. When she looked up, the sheer massive tallness of the surrounding buildings took her breath away. A great black shadow was moving down the street, and she nearly broke her neck craning her head back to watch the super dirigible passing overhead. She watched the giant bag until she could no longer track it behind the big buildings, and it was the most magical thing she had ever seen. San Francisco was supposedly one of the least harmed cities by the Depression, being such a mighty cosmopolitan hub of commerce. Having all of those military folks stationed at the nearby Peace Ray Station spending all their money here had to help things. Faye could only begin to imagine how this place could have possibly been any fancier four years before. Compared to the Vieira farm, or especially the shacks she had lived in before that, San Francisco was astounding. Gilbert had told her about how taxicabs could drive her right to the address on Grandpa's note for a fee. At first she thought that sounded absurd. Paying somebody good money to ride when you could just walk? But her foot still hurt from the stupid beetle and the city was so overwhelming that the idea of walking across it was terrifying. So she got in line behind the other travelers waving at the curb and studied them so that when it got to be her turn she wouldn't look too much like a stupid hick. Faye was so distracted by her new surroundings that she didn't see the man watching her from the steps of the train station. He paused long enough to crumple and toss a telegram sheet before following. That was Part 13 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Edith Hoffman, and thanks to Ruth Judkowitz, podcast theme composer. And a combined Grayson Navy, Royal Manticore Navy Overflight, and Fiesta and Fireworks show for David Weber author of The Honor of the Queen, now available in a new signed Leatherback edition. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>